Well, greetings. Welcome to a rolling along the road, dividing line short. I don't know if that's going to stick. It probably won't. We'll come up with something else. Somebody, I'm terrible at titles. Um, but, you know, I figured, hey, I spend hours in here. And if I had a co-pilot, we could sit here and talk. And uh, but I don't. Um, maybe someday the wife, will get to go along. Right now, she's taking care of her mom. Um, and that's, you know, it's that time of in our lives. And that's what she needs to be doing. So there you go. But um, there are times when I'm like, man, I'd like to be able to comment on that. So I thought, well, let's do an audio recording. Use Sermon Audio. Link to it. Let people know. And um, like today, it just does not appear that I will be able to get to my next stop uh, early enough really to do much as far as a dividing line is concerned. And, you know, we did a fairly lengthy program yesterday, so that's that's fine. Anyway, the troublemaker from Texas uh, was making trouble this morning. And um, his... Uh, what he did is I was actually getting gas when, uh, you know, ding. And uh, <laughs> it's funny. I was I was in a, actually I think it was a men's room uh, at a large gas station uh, along the interstate. And you hear ding. <laughs> Everybody in the room's reaching for their phones. <laughs> you know, they could tell whose it was. And we all have the same ding. It's, uh, it's like Pavlov's dog. Oh. The, uh, the regime wants me. Anyway, um, the troublemaker from Texas sent me a tweet from Tony Byrne. Tony Byrne's an Amaraldian. Well, he was last I knew, anyways. Has been for a long time. I, but Tony Byrne's been one of the primary... Uh, he has been the primary source provider to David Allen to attack the particularity and the consistent Trinitarian consistency of the atoning work of Christ. And so Tony Byrne tweeted, if Jesus died only for the sins of the elect, then no one, and that's in italics, I wish it, I'd like to know how to do the italics thing, that would be sort of cool. Then no one, I think I do know how, but man, if, if, if that's how you're doing it, it takes forever. No one can know from scripture alone that Jesus substituted himself for their sins. Notice the language. The ramifications at this point for the definition of the gospel, assurance, faith, warrant, etc., are quite profound. So, if Jesus died only for the sins of the elect, then no one can know from Scripture alone that Jesus substituted himself for their sins. That's the assertion that, that is made. So, once again, think through. It's, it's so vitally important to think through what is behind the question. I think if there is one thing, I, you know, very often I have people say, I'd like to get involved with uh, apologetics, and I, I'd like to do apologetics and, and things like that. One of the absolutely most important things that you, you have to be able to do, and I'm not sure, I guess it's something you can learn. I, I guess it is something you can, you can teach yourself uh, over time. I guess it's just a natural thing for me. It's just a natural way that I think when I hear a statement or especially when I hear a question, 
my mind, and I've mentioned this before, sort of graphically uh, lays out um, the foundations that would be necessary for the question to be a valid question. And so I can I can see visually the uh, you know what what would be required for this to be a, a valid question. And so in this case, as is normal, the vast majority of objections to particular redemption are actually objections to the doctrine of election, which Tony Burns says he believes. But this is an objection to election. Because no one can know from Scripture alone their own election. They can't, there's no, the list of the elect is not provided in the pages of Scripture, obviously. And so the objection really uh, assumes that there can be some kind of specific scriptural revelation of ones being in the elect, because those are the ones for whom Christ effectively uh, engages in substitutionary atonement. But no one can know that. And there's all sorts of things that you can't know in that sense, because there are general principles laid out in Scripture. It's sort of like when the Roman Catholics say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't specifically say Mary sinned just because she talked about God as her Savior doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, you, you have to have the words Jesus, uh, Mary sinned, or like when the Muslims uh, follow Ahmadidat, and uh, the Bible does not specifically, nowhere does Jesus say, I am God, worship me. And so there can't be uh, any kind of uh, doctrine that is not specifically stated in that, in that sense. And so, evidently, the idea is, well, Scripture isn't, uh, you know, Scripture alone, solo scriptura, is not sufficient to give you this kind of information, when the reality is, Scripture alone teaches the perfection of the work of Christ, its perfect harmony with the decree of the Father, and that's where, that's the, that's the issue here, is that the Amaraldian system, distinguishes and, and breaks the harmony, the intertrinitarian harmony, between the decree of the Father and the accomplishment of the Son and then the application of the Spirit. And so uh, we can just simply respond by saying there's a unstated assumption here, and that's where the, the problem is, and that is Scripture has to somehow identify who the elect are so that we can know um, none of this actually has anything to do with the reality that the high priest intercedes for those for whom he makes a sacrifice. That's, that's true. The, then you make application to specific individuals or specific situations, and that's where particular redemption comes from. And uh, so that's the kind of, of thing that uh, is very, very common and in my experience, it is coming to understand those basic foundational things that is so important in not only understanding doctrine of redemption, but then in listening to the objections and being able to think through, well, 
what would have to be true for these objections to be true? What's the what's the foundational presupposition and assumption of of the objection? And um, so there you go. So I'm gonna I'm gonna save this and try to get it to uh, to Rich. I'm not you know it's for, just thought of it this morning and then oh, let's let's uh, see if it can even be done. Uh, it, it, you know, and uh, so that's that's what we're doing on our way to today. I just left Whiteville, Virginia. Uh, I'm heading for some place in Tennessee today. I guess it's about seven hours on the road today. Uh, probably a little more uh, with with stops thrown in there. And uh, then uh, into Conway on on Wednesday. And uh, the early church history class begins. On Thursday morning, looking forward to seeing all the bright, shiny faces and diving into the early church. And you might say, you know, I'm, let me just add this in so it's worth spending the time uploading it. Uh, our emphasis at GBTS is in the preparation of ministers in the church. I really appreciate that. Um, that is the the first and foremost function of Christian scholarship is the edification of the church. It's not the edification of the academy. And someone might say, well, if that's the case, and you you all are Reformed Biblicists, uh, why are you studying church history? <laughs> I can hear that from some people. I really, I really could see that coming up. And the answer, of course... Uh, is not that Scripture is insufficient to equip the man of God, but Scripture itself directs us to history. There are so many examples of look back to those who came before. Look to what God's faithfulness has been in the past. That's why you you had the Ebenezer, the stone of help, the pile of rocks that people would put up to commemorate when God had, by his grace and power, interceded in their lives. And so we have scriptural examples of looking at what God has done and of course, as Christians, we have the biblical example of the fact that Jesus promised to build his church. And so we have the history of men and women who profess the faith of Christ. We can't necessarily look into their hearts and know with absolute certainty who was the elect and who was not. Uh, as I look at church history, uh, I, I look at those who came before me in the way that I would want to be looked at by those who will come after me, and that is that I, I want to believe the best. Um, I'm going to be hopeful uh, for their salvation and for their uh, relationship to Christ. Um, there, there may be some that make that very difficult by the things they did and, and said and professed. Uh, Lots of inconsistencies in in church history, but uh, I want to be as hopeful as I can, and then I want to be able to learn. I want to uh, be able to learn from the positive examples and from the negative examples, learn from the victories and from the defeats. And if that includes uh, having to recognize, hey, I'm in a completely different context than they were in, so I have to be very, very careful, very, very uh, circumspect in my specific applications. There are still a lot of examples and, and, 
edification and encouragement that can be derived from the study of church history. And yes, that includes early church history. I was raised independent fundamentalist Baptist. Early church history meant nothing to us. Early church history, as I've said so many times, was the period before Billy Graham. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the fact is there are a lot of parallels, a lot of parallels to where we are today. Um, the, the, the paganism of the society around us, how the church is going to respond to persecution. That was one of my topics. I'm not sure if it's been posted. Maybe we can track it down. Oh, and as I was sitting here, as I was sitting here, I just realized <laughs> that I did not link what I promised to link in yesterday's dividing line. So what am I supposed to do that? What am I supposed to do right now? There's nothing I can do about that. I can guarantee you uh, six and a half hours from now or more, uh, when I get to where I'm going, I'm not going to remember that. So I'll have to try to, I don't know, put a bunch of string in my in my truck here, tie it around different fingers, hoping I can remember which one meant to do what. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, I, uh, I will try to get that link uh, put up. But uh, studying early church history, so many parallels, persecution, and I, I gave a presentation. This I don't know if they've posted it uh, out in. Honestly, I don't even remember this. The little city. Well, it wasn't even a city. It was just. It was a spot in the middle of cornfields uh, to the east of Harrisburg, and it was last Friday night. And that was my discussion. Was the early church? You know, I read the, the Cyprian's words to the miners. Um, that's M-I-N-E-R-S. And uh, what was interesting was all of the questions that were asked afterwards had absolutely nothing to do with the topic. You, you sort of wonder if you just you either exhausted the topic or you bored the people to tears if um, all the questions afterwards are on completely, completely, utterly different topics. Though, I will say this. They all demonstrated a knowledge of current controversies and discussions on the dividing line. So that was positive, but nobody asked a question about that. So let's talk about the doctrine of divine simplicity. <laughs> uh, let's be honest. The vast majority of us have never heard of the doctrine of divine simplicity. Until recently, anyways. And... Primarily, systematic theologians would address it, and now it has become a central theme of a controversy amongst Reformed people. How'd that happen? Well, it's, it's really not about simplicity. Uh, it is about the difference between having a doctrine that is derived from biblical revelation and having a doctrine that is derived from philosophy and then made to look like it's at least consistent with biblical revelation. That's a there is a world of difference between a doctrine derived from scripture and a doctrine made to be amenable to scripture. And I think over time the sheep of Christ can tell the difference. Uh but sometimes on the the short end of things, uh, maybe not. 
So what would be, first of all, what is the doctrine of divine simplicity? Well, it's normally, it would normally be defined as the fact that God's essence is simple rather than compound. So it's a special use of the term, simple. It's not the normal use for simple that, that we would utilize uh, in the English language today, but it, it has an obvious meaning to it. And that is that God is not made up of differing parts so that you can take one part out, maybe replace it with something else or anything along those lines. God's being is one and God's being is um, not dependent upon composition. Now, there is a biblical doctrine of simplicity, and there is a philosophical doctrine of simplicity. And it is important, I think, to differentiate the two, especially today in light of the controversies going on about the function and authority of sola scriptura. A biblical doctrine of simplicity would basically be derived from, well, a biblical doctrine of simplicity is a subcategory of the doctrine of monotheism. There is one true God. And a biblically oriented understanding would say that the being of God is not complex, is not compound, is not made up of parts, because there's only one true God, he is eternal, and he's the creator of all things. Those are all fundamentally biblical teachings. And therefore, his being could not be made up of lesser parts because he would have had to have created those parts in the first place. And so you'd have no grounding uh, for the lesser parts to make up God in the first place. So, clear biblical teaching, Isaiah 40 to 48, trial of false gods, one true God, eternal, uh, creator of all things. Put those together, and you have a biblical doctrine of divine simplicity. God's being is simple. It's not made up of uh, lesser lesser parts. So there would be a, uh, you know, if, if you want to hold to biblical theology, there would be a mechanism whereby you can identify the doctrine of simplicity. Today, what is being promoted by many is not a biblical doctrine of simplicity, but a philosophical doctrine of simplicity that is derived not from monotheism, creatorship, uh, biblical categories like that, but primarily from a metaphysical standpoint of Thomas Aquinas mediating the overarching categories of Aristotle. And so what you have there is the insistence that there can be no parts to God and hence no, no distinctions. And thereby you have the extended assertion of the idea that the attributes of God are in some fashion not to be distinguished and cannot be distinguished from another. And if we do distinguish them, we are doing so only as creatures with a lesser capacity uh, 
so that we don't really know um, the nature of God the way that it should be known. And so the assertion being that uh, God's omniscience is God's omnipresence, is God's love, is God's mercy, is God's justice, etc., uh, etc., et because to distinguish between the attributes is to make them parts uh, out of which God is, is constructed. And, um, again, I, I don't know why that, that that becomes a necessity. If the attributes, if, if a statement, the name of an attribute is simply a true description of an aspect of God's being, then you do not have to confuse them. You do not have to do any of this type of stuff and uh, engage in all the philosophical gymnastics that you have to engage in to maintain a philosophical doctrine of simplicity. And, of course, there is a... Uh, you have the reality in history of how you explain how God's being is simple and yet... There is a true, eternal, vitally important distinction between Father, Son, and Spirit. How do you have three divine persons who are sharing one absolutely undivided and simple being? Well, I actually don't see that as a real major problem, as long as, obviously, if you're holding a biblical doctrine of simplicity, that's not even an issue. Uh, but... Uh, I'll let those who hold to a philosophical doctrine of simplicity explain exactly how they fit all of that together and still have a place for the Father, Son, and Spirit to be actual persons who can interact with one another. Um, obviously, it is the philosophical doctrine of simplicity that gives rise to the concept of inseparable operations, which very similarly, has, there's, a, there's a biblical way of speaking of the perfection and unity of the Father, Son, and Spirit in accomplishing the one will of God, and that none of the divine persons act separately from, as in distinction from, um, God as a whole. But as long as you remain biblical, you can say that in the same way that John chapter 5 says that without destroying the distinction and destroying the reality um, that uh, you have Father, Son, and Spirit doing particular things, so that it is the Son who is incarnate, it's the Spirit who indwells the people of God. Um, these things are, are fundamental truths, and if you put the emphasis upon the philosophy then you end up with this strange eisegesis where you're trying to dance around the fact that the New Testament authors very clearly distinguish Father, Son, and Spirit and not merely based upon internal relationships, uh, i.e. the Father begetting, the Son being begotten, and the Spirit being expirated. Uh, those are theological developments from a much later time period to begin with. Um, and certainly not apostolic in the sense of some type of, this is the only way you can distinguish Father, Son, and Spirit. The, the apostolic writers very plainly uh, distinguish them 
uh, Father, Son, Spirit in meaningful fashion. In fact, some of the greatest beauty of the doctrine of the Trinity is the interaction of Father, Son, and Spirit, seeing the Carmen Christi, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, and none of these are limited to ad intra uh, distinctions as to be able to differentiate between Father, Son, and Spirit. So, anyway, um, why is this at all relevant? Well, because the doctrine, the, the truth of monotheism is foundational to the entire doctrine of God. It is, it is not only the, the foundational doctrine, but it determines the nature of the other doctrines that give us the entire concept of the Trinity. And so we, we need to recognize the emphasis of Scripture upon monotheism, upon the fact there is only one true God. That is really necessary to be able to understand the Lordship of Christ, incarnation, um, the ful fulfillment of divine promises made in the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, the, the, what we call the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. The fulfillment of the promises made there, for example, uh, Christ must reign until every enemy is put under his feet. You look back at the Old Testament and you see this uh, Yahweh extending the scepter of his power over the nations and giving the nations as an inheritance to his son. Uh, these, are, these are all promises that are extremely important that have a context in which they must be interpreted. And divine simplicity does allow us, biblical divine simplicity, allows us to recognize these things without falling into the error of tritheism. And together with the biblical argument that God cannot be made up of lesser parts because God's the maker of all lesser parts to begin with, you likewise have the biblical reality of the identification of Father, Son, and Spirit with the divine name Yahweh. And so the Father is identified as Yahweh. And just, just giving an example, it was Yahweh that laid our sins upon the Messiah. That's the Father. Uh, the Son is identified as Yahweh in numerous texts. You know, John twelve forty one and, and Philippians chapter 2 and all these places where the New Testament writers make that specific application. And the Spirit in the Old Testament is the Spirit of the Lord or the Spirit of Yahweh. I think people will see that a little bit more clearly if they read something like the Legacy Standard Bible where you actually have the divine name there. Um, I, I think it's very, a very helpful aspect of it. And so the fact that there's only one Yahweh, that's the one Yahweh of Isaiah 40, 48, and yet that one Yahweh is identified with Father, Son, and Spirit is a vitally important mechanism whereby the scriptures preclude us from so separating the divine persons that we end up as tritheists or subordinationists where there's one one Yahweh above other representatives of Yahweh or things like that, which some Unitarians have definitely come up with in the past. So one might say, yeah, but it's, but it's not really a pastoral doctrine. Well, monotheism certainly is. Um, the immutability of God most certainly is. 
his sameness over time, his faithfulness. Um, thank you very much. Yes, I am driving. Um, <laughs> uh, so it does have that pastoral and important application, I think, that needs to be uh, recognized as well. So do I believe in the doctrine of divine simplicity? Of course. Uh, do I distinguish between a biblical doctrine and a philosophical doctrine? Most assuredly, I do. Uh, most assuredly, I do. And um, I think it's, it's important to recognize those differences. So, hope that was helpful. Thanks for listening.